here, but we are continuing our series all about faith, and today we're going to talk about a category of faith that does not exist in the Bible. I know, you may say, but it's in all the textbooks. It's something that everybody's agreed to. Well, first of all, not everyone has agreed to it. I want you to take your Bibles and go to Galatians chapter 5 with me, please, for a moment, in verse 6, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. There's a lot that I want to cover today, but there's also a lot of things that we've got to do, mainly communion. I've been saying for a while now, I don't like to rush communion. I think it's an important part of our Christian testimony to remember and reflect on what Jesus Christ has done for us. But I also don't want to skimp out on these passages that we're going to look at. Last week, we talked about, and I think it shocked many of you, we talked about how the, the, the Reformation, Reformed theology, started in 1517, went all the way through to 1650. We talked about how they redefined the word faith. And if you can recall, we understood that they added three elements to faith. It's all in Latin, but one is to uh, understand, notia, and then the other is to ascend to the truth, which is to agree to it, which is ascensus. And then they added this third term that is not in the natural understanding of faith, but it is universally accepted in Reformed theology. They added fiducia as the last word. I know, big words. I like the English language, you know what I'm saying? Latin is, ugh. Anyway, but they added that as volitionary submission or obedience. So you could talk to somebody who's of Reformed theology, and you could say, we're saved alone, uh, we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. They'd say, amen, brother. But your understanding of faith is different from their understanding of faith. And it's very, very devious. It comes in very subtly. It twists that one understanding of faith. And from that, you may say, well, how can we identify it? If it's the same word, how do we know that their definition of faith is the same as the biblical definition of faith? Well, that's why we're talking about this word up here, spurious faith. The Calvinist or Reformed theology produces this idea that there are three necessarily contexts of faith. There's saving faith, which we already talked about what that is. There's non-saving faith. And then there's spurious faith. And spurious faith is the faith that appears to save, but it's not really saving faith because they didn't go on into good works. You see how that third term of faith is snuck in there? It's packaged together. And all of a sudden now... A person looks at their justification before God and says, I know I'm justified because I believed and I worked. That's a dangerous, dangerous position to be in. I've got two quotes that I want to share with you about this idea of spurious faith because you're going to hear this the most on all the Christian radio stations. Moody Radio, you'll hear it on WTBN. There will always be some type of catch with salvation. It won't be there in the beginning, but we saw last week there are Modern teachers writing since, you know, the 80s that say, well, I'd say a six-month waiting period is accurate. That's a dangerous proposition. And, you know, I was talking with my wife afterwards, and I said, why just six months? Think about this for a moment. Six months is a very small amount of time compared to a full life. You mean to say that someone could just be really well-behaved for six months, and then they've gotten the stamp of approval from some church that they're really saved now? What happens in month seven if they just totally crash and burn? Was the stamp of approval inaccurate? Needs to be removed now? Who's got the stamp? Who's doing the stamping? I would like to meet this person, uh, and I would like to do an analysis on their life. And what you come to find is there's a lot of power-hungry pastors that are looking to become lords over the people. 
I've been doing a lot of research on a lot of different things, and one of the things I've come to is this idea of the Christians being cast into outer darkness because of disobedience here. It's so important that we know our Bibles. Is there anything in the Bible that tells us at the rapture that we'll be with the Lord forever? Absolutely. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. There is no outer darkness waiting for the Christian. There is peace, there is joy and fellowship. There is a loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, which we should take seriously because a lot of the encouragement and rebuke and admonition that is in the New Testament is about the Christian finishing well. Not finishing so they can be declared righteous in the sense of salvation, but finishing well so that when they stand before the Lord, they will not be ashamed. And I think that's a reality for many born-again believers, that they will stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, and they will have very little that has survived that fire. But we know very specifically, that rewarding stand is not for the believer's body to be burned. It is for their works to be tried. And even in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, He shall be saved yet so as by fire. So I'm not waiting to stand before Jesus Christ to see if I'll be burned for a thousand years and then be brought back in. You know, right after the judgment seat of Christ, there's a wedding feast. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you're going to get married and everybody's excited and all the, the service goes so well? And then the husband looks at his new bride and says, All right. Time to go into the jailhouse. I love you. I'll come get you when the wedding feast is over. What? Well, that's what a lot of people are teaching. And it's another way to lord over you somebody else's standards of righteousness. That's called legalism. That's dangerous, and it ruins people's faith. Because now it's like, well, I, if Pastor so-and-so says I'm doing good, then I'm doing good. And you become a follower of him, and Jesus is still left out. The devil is so tricky, but folks... He's not stupid. He is not stupid. He knows exactly what he's doing. He is distracting people. And things like what we're going to look at today, it's another distraction. But you need to be aware of it. And I know there's some of you here that already know these things, and you may be thinking, why do we keep going over them? Because many people still don't know. And it's a good reminder so you can know what is the truth. You see these errors, and you can say, that doesn't line up with the Bible. What is spurious faith? We're going to take a look here. This is part three. We're going to break this part into two parts. Surprise, surprise. But we'll have about four passages that we look at today, and they're smaller passages. And these are how the Reformation uses this definition of spurious faith. They say, see, look at this passage, this passage, this one, and this one. We're going to look at about four today, and then next week we'll look at two. And the ones that we look at next week, they're a lot larger, and there's some more cross-references that we can look at. But I want you to look at some of these quotes up here. I know they're small. I know it's hard to read, but I'd rather do it on one slide than six. (laughs) Uh, Is it enough to know and understand and assent? Do you see that? I want you to spot it right here. To assent to the truth is to agree that it is true. There is nothing else to do. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again three days later? And that's the payment for your sin. Yes. Biblically, that person is saved. In Reformed theology, that's part one. Part two is then, now show me. Show me. Is it enough to know and understand and assent to the facts of the gospel, even holding the inward conviction that these truths apply to me personally, 
and yet never shun sin or submit to the Lord Jesus is a person who holds that kind of belief guaranteed eternal life. So I ask you, is a person who is inwardly convicted that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ applies to their sin, are they saved? Yes. Does such a hope constitute faith in the sense in which Scripture uses the term? And here we go, James. I've got two people here today I love. Their names are James. There's a third one. He actually wrote a book in the Bible. I like him too. But boy, his words have been twisted. So they go to James. They say, James expressly teaches that it does not. You need to understand here. What is it? Oh, that didn't work. You can barely see that. But what is it? It is the inward conviction that the truth of Jesus' sacrifice applies to them personally. This author here says that faith does not save. Okay. All right, you've made your case. We know where he stands. Real faith. Here it is, folks. Substituted for genuine, substituted for faith, uh, for saving, however you want. Real faith, he says, will produce righteous behavior. And the true character of saving faith, there's another one, I love that term, may be examined in light of the believer's works. This is our old buddy, J-Mac, that's what they call him in the comment section. They get their stones and they throw it at me and I, I look and I say, J-Mac, J-Mac, who is this? John MacArthur, that's in Faith According to the Apostle James, page 16. This was actually a theological journal that he wrote in. I say this a lot of times. Videos are great. You want to find out what these people really believe? Read their writings. Read what they write. Those stand alone as a good uh, highlight. Here's another one. J.I. Packer, Concise Theology, A Guide to Historic Christian Beliefs. On page 160, he says this. Faith is a whole-souled response involving mind, heart, will, and affections. But if good works, activities of serving God and others, do not follow from our profession of faith, we are as yet believing only from the head and not from the heart. This is a huge difference. I've heard people talk about the 18 inches or whatever. You're going to miss heaven by that much. Folks, every single time that the Bible uses the word heart and mind together in the same verse, they are synonymous. It's interchangeable. Okay, Let's just say something happens to this old thing right here. And all of a sudden, I need a heart transplant. And I go in, and I'm talking to the doctors, and they're about to put the mask on me and say, ho, 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 can we get somebody who's put their trust in Jesus Christ and ask them into their heart? Because I want to make sure that that transfer works. You know, I don't want to have to redo this. You know, once saved, always saved, brother. Come on. It's silly. But when kids hear this, especially kids, when they hear, ask Jesus in your heart, you've got to believe him with... All your heart, you know, and they, you know, they got the little heart in the Sunday school material. You know what kids think? I was one of them. I got to ask them into my heart. I would literally envision some type of situation where Jesus could be in my heart. And then when I would mess up, inevitably, I thought he would leave. And so I got to go back to church, hear another message, be convicted again, and then I bring him back in. It's dangerous teaching. Isn't it good to know that you just simply believe one time and you're saved forever? God does the keeping? But that's not what these writers say. In other words, we're in the middle here, justifying faith. I want you to notice that. What's that word he's got there in parentheses? Fiducia. What is that? That's the third prong of faith. What is that? Obedience. Look how they classify that. Justifying faith. 
Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Done. Done. But they say, well, really, he was justified when he offered up Isaac. Well, he was justified a second time, and we'll look at that when we get into James chapter 2 in a moment here. He was justified before men that his faith wrought obedience. He was a disciplined man. He was called the friend of God because of that. But he was declared righteous only one time by God. And how was it? Genesis 15, 6. Here's the promise, Abraham. Do you believe it? Yes, you're saved. People have a problem with that. Justifying faith is not yet ours. The truth is that though we are justified by faith alone, the faith that justifies is never alone. Oh, I wish I could roll my eyes so hard they fall out of my head. Because that sounds so good. People hear that and they go, hmm, preach. And then you may say, what did he say? I don't know. It sounded really good. That's a phrase you're going to hear a lot. We're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. What do they mean by that? Well, if you see what they mean by justifying faith, it's obedience. A real Christian will not be disobedient. And if they are disobedient, then they were never really saved. They're a false conversion. There is no perfect Christian here. We all have a sin nature. God did nothing about that. He did not bust into the door and say, I'm here to do an HGTV makeover of this person. We're going to take this old sinful nature and turn it into something uh, totally different. You won't even know. It's still got the same parts. We need something brand new, folks, and we got it the moment that we put our trust in Jesus Christ. I stand here today. I've got two natures, and I have a choice to walk in one or the other. I can fulfill the lusts and desires of my flesh, and I will reap no eternal rewards for that. I will reap the chastening hand of God. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 is saying. Uh, he opened up the earth and swallowed them up there. What makes you think that he's changed now? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's a warning for a believer that you better straighten up, act correctly. And in my flesh nature, there is no good thing. You know, the great apostle Paul said the same thing. He wrote what is it, 14 books of the New Testament? And he still said, when I want to do something good, evil is present with me. Oh, well, Paul was really not saved. He didn't have fiducia. He didn't have obedience. Really? You know, Paul was told expressly not to go to Jerusalem. You read that. And then God allowed it. But he was told not to do it. And he says, how could I not go? Well, I don't know. Paul, maybe because God said not to, he did it anyway. He faced some consequences. Really, his ministry was shackled by that. God still used it. He was still brought before kings as he was said he was going to be in Acts chapter 9 at his conversion. But Paul writes about this. So in my old sinful nature, guys, nothing good. But I've got a brand new nature, 1 John 3, 9, which is born of God and cannot sin. Why? Because I keep it? No, because it is born of God. People don't like that. That's too basic. Well, you can take it up with the Holy Spirit. He wrote it. That new nature that is within us, it cannot sin. And when we die, praise God, that's what goes on. They don't separate this. They link them together. The faith that justifies is never alone. Back to the quote. It produces moral fruit. It expresses itself through love. Look in... Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, you're in your Bibles there. This is one of their proof texts. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, 
nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. What does he mean here? Well, we could, of course, take several verses in the Bible and become, you know, we just pick one cherry here, pick a strawberry here, a little banana here, a little watermelon. Look at this beautiful thing, but everything is out of context. What's the context of this here? Look in verse 5, or excuse me, uh, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us, what? Free. What was happening in Galatia, which, by the way, was not a city. It was a region of about nine different churches. Here come these guys in suits and ties. Probably not suits and ties, but very nice robes. And they say, yes, yes, faith alone, yes. But you've got to keep the law. Specifically, men who are well past eight days old, you've got to get circumcised. That is not good news. That's not something where we're like, when, where do I sign up? What's, why? why? Why circumcision? Oh, because, you know, you've got to be obedient to the Mosaic law. But Christ has made us free. No, 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 don't listen to Paul. Yeah, I'm a Jew. I'm of that, which God has come from. And people were starting to look to their works to justify themselves. And Paul says we're free. Look what he says. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. What's he saying? If you are saved by circumcision, and if you're holding on to that for your salvation, then Christ died for nothing. I want to direct your attention to the end of chapter 2 in Galatians. Look over, just a one-page turnover. Uh, Two-page turns over. (laughs) Yesterday, Jan and I were doing some work here around the church. We were filling up my truck. I love my truck. I love it. I know it's so small. And it looks so, I look like Wreck-It Ralph in that thing. That's okay. But I love that truck because it works. You know what I'm saying? But anyway, we're driving around. We're coming here, filling up the bed, going over there. We go to the dump, okay? And I'm talking, we, we had five, we had four different slots that we had to go to. We had wood, we had scrap, we had all that stuff. So I'm pulling into the second one that we're visiting, which is like metal and stone. And we're just throwing some stuff away. And these two guys are talking, security guard and a waste management worker. And they're just, you know, talking about the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars and all this stuff, you know, like, hey, man, war's in the name. That's awesome, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm just like listening. And I'm like, oh, it'd be great if they'd talk about something else. Now, give them the gospel. So I go in my truck, give them the gospel. I come out, start talking to them. The security officer, he, this, is, this is one of the first times this has happened. He, he's, he's kind of facing to the side of me. So I get his attention, and he turns to me with his head. I share the gospel with him. I say, you can know that you have eternal life. What Jesus Christ did on the cross is not something that you add to. It's what you trust in solely. That's it. And he, he turned around to me. He's like, talk to me, brother. And I'm like, I will. I will. Thank you. <laughs> I asked him to be seated. We took an offering. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. But I started talking to him. And we went through it. And he, he had a... He had a chain on it. It had a cross on it. And he says, this, this is how I know. This reminds me every day. You know, I put this on every day. Now, he didn't expressly say that I know I'm saved because of this chain, but I can infer that that's, if, if you would say, well, if you no longer wore that, are you still saved? He might have some confusion. And I quoted to him this verse. Look what it says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God for if, for if, 
a hypothetical here, righteousness, which is salvific righteousness, come is attained by the law. What's a part of the law? Circumcision. 613 other laws. If righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead, what? In vain. He died for nothing if our righteousness comes by good works. Package the good works any way you want. Circumcision, you know, like turning from sin. However you think righteousness comes outside of Christ, he died for nothing. That's a serious claim. And Paul is arguing from that. So when I talked to this security guard, I told him, I said, trinkets, good works, commitments, those are all beneficial things, but they do not make us acceptable in the eyes of God. And he said he understood it. We went back to the church here, picked up a few more things. I went back there, didn't get a chance to talk to him, but I rolled down the window and they're still talking about, well, this is actually when we left. They both had the track, and they started talking about God and Jesus. And you know what? Our work is done. You have a bag full of seeds, folks, and there's all different types of soil. Start throwing out the seeds. You know what I'm saying? What kind of salvation would it be if I look at him and say, now when I come back here, better be straightened up. All that foul language better be gone. I need to see some fiducia. I need to see some voluntary submission. Nobody does that. You know why? Because that's not how we're saved. That's not logical. That's like getting a a, a gift that's free, and then you open up the gift and everything's great, and someone's got dental floss tied to it, and they rip it out of your hands. I'm like, what? Well, you got to work for it. That's not a gift. That's something that we earn. That's Calvinism. Faith alone in Christ alone, but saving faith is never alone. (laughs) I got him. That's a dangerous thing. Finishing this here. Oh, I'm sorry. Go go back to Galatians chapter 5. We're looking at, they use that... Verse 6 to say, oh, it's worked out in love, and that's what proves it. That's not what's going on here. Look in verse 3. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole thing. Great. You did one. You've got 612 left. And if you even come into the temple and you're not properly cleansed, you'll be outside the camp, and there are some severe things that you could do that we could stone you. Circumcision is not the only thing, but that's what these teachers were telling them. He says, if it's, if it's all by the law, you've got to do it all. Look at verse 4. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Now, many people will say, this is see, you can lose your salvation. What this means is, if a person who's once justified by God because of faith in Jesus, now thinks they're justified by their works, they've fallen away, not from God, but from his grace. What is his grace? The offer of Jesus Christ. They've moved away from him and they've now focused on works. There are people here today that if you are not careful, you can fall away from the grace that has been bestowed upon you. That you've freely received. You can fall away from it. Well, what's the danger? I'm saved forever. You know what the danger is? Number one, you you are more likely to avoid sharing your faith. Because you know inside you're not perfect like you should be. And second, anything you do share brings a lost person under a message that doesn't save. That's why people say, well, you know, all these guys, 
They have good teaching. I like MacArthur. I like this. I like that. I say, I don't want to touch them at all because I know if I say a stamp of approval, someone might go, I should start listening to them too. And then all of a sudden, it's, it becomes danger. We're not a cult here. It's not, well, what does Pastor Jesse say? No, no. What does God's word say? I'm going to know that, and then I'm going to do that which I have learned. It's a model for success that Paul says at least twice. Or excuse me, James says it in James chapter 1, and Paul says it in Philippians chapter 4. The things that you have seen and heard and received of me, do. All right, verse 5. For, the, for we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision, circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. But how do we work out our faith? By love. You can't be a salty Christian and be a mature Christian at the same time. That's why 1 John is a, it's a tough book. Because it's like, hey, look in the mirror here. I don't want to. Why? Because your sin is showing. Your hideous sinful nature is showing. And you have paraded it as some type of good thing. Well, this is the will of God. Those who are born of God love one another. Are you born of God? Yes. Are you loving one another? No. Then you're not walking with him. I described this in my first John class, which I'm so excited to teach. Shameless plug. I really want you to come and hear my class. It'll, it, this book will change your life. Not the way that I teach it, but what the scripture says, it'll change your life if you go and do and apply it. Fellowship is like going over to somebody's house for dinner. It's spending time with one another. The meal's cooking, the aromas are going, you enjoy food, you break bread and all that. You're not going to invite somebody over to your house that hates you and is disrespectful towards you. The invitation may stand, but if they come in and they bust the door down, they, I hate filet mignon. I hate what you're cooking. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, you're great. But they don't sit down at the table. They bring their own food. All this stuff. Is that real fellowship? That's disrespect. And that's how a lot of Christians are acting. Well, here's my sin. It's not really a problem. It's not really sin. Well, careful, because 1 John 1 says, if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. Oh, that means they're not really saved. No, that means they're not walking like they think they are. You can be saying you're doing something and you're not. I can stand up here and say I have a lot of hair products and put gel in my hair. Folks, one of these things is true, the other is false. I can convince myself. You see it happening in the world today. People convincing themselves of something that is not true as truth. I don't even have to give you examples. We all know what it is. It's dangerous. Why is it dangerous? It is lying to yourself and taking it as truth. And people are already doing that with God's word. So then... In verse 7, he says, Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? What is the truth that they are disobeying? That salvation is done by faith in Christ alone. The lie they're now believing as truth is, my salvation is accomplished by my circumcision, my keeping of good works. Paul warns them, this is a bad thing. Up here on the screen, it transfers one's way of living. It begets virtue. This is not only because, of hol because holiness is commanded, but also because the regenerate heart, which fiducia is the expression, desires holiness and can find full commitment only in seeking it. You would have to take this, and you would have to look at Peter. One of the last things we read about Peter is in Galatians 2. He had favoritism over his Jewish brothers, over his Gentile brothers. And Paul says, I withstood you to the face. 
This is the one that Jesus said, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. Peter didn't make it. He didn't make it. He didn't have real transforming, saving faith. How crazy is that? You know why it's crazy? It goes against what the Bible clearly teaches. And I get worked up and defensive about this stuff because I see how it destroys lives. I've talked to many people on the phone. Go to James chapter 2. We're going to spend some time there for just a little bit because I've done this already three times this year, but I think it's important that you see what they're saying and then we look at it. But I've had many conversations with people on the phone, and folks, I'm, I'm talking about they're crying. They are sobbing on the phone with me. And they'll say, I know that I'm saved. I, I, I've put my trust in Jesus Christ. So they'll say things like this. But how do I know I really believed? How do I know it really worked? And I, there's nothing I can do for that person. You know why? they got to believe it for themselves. Now, I would say that if they're putting their assurance and confidence in Jesus Christ, the Bible says they're saved. But they have zero opportunity in that state of growth. And you know, the sad thing is, is that many people, they, they never get right. They're always looking back to themselves. They're always looking back to themselves. I remember I was talking with one guy, very upset. He was interrupting me a lot. We were go- it was just, he really wanted me to just hear what he had to say. And so I listened to him, and I'm not kidding. It was probably for about a half an hour. He just went on and on and on. And I interrupted him, and I said, I said his name, and I said, listen, this is what it comes down to. Do you believe what God said, or do you believe he's tricking you? Silence on the phone. Hello? (laughs) Nothing. And he finally said, you know, I'd never thought of it that way. And I'm going, how can you not? Because you start twisting basic things like what it means to believe, what it means to have faith, and everyone starts to look to their sinful nature to prove something that it can never prove. That's why we got something brand new. I've never heard from that guy again. I hope that he's now moved past this silly idea of belief is real. Real belief is not real belief. And just goes into the truth. You got to be careful, folks. It'll get you just as quickly as it gets other people. So how the Reformation uses scripture to prove spurious faith. This is faith that really didn't save. Look in James chapter 2 and verse 14. James is, you know, (laughs) shockingly, Chapter 2 has 13 other verses before this. I know that you have probably not heard that from a lot of modern teachers, but he's telling these people, you say that you've got faith and that you believe on Christ, but you don't demonstrate it to others. How are people going to know that you've got faith in Christ if you're not willing to demonstrate it to others? Specifically, they have partiality, and they were committing Sins in their mind, but they were, they were saying they're safe because they're not sinning in actuality. Well, that's a danger. And he says in verse 12, he says very clearly in verse 12, So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. They're not going to be judged by the law of Moses. They're judged by the law of liberty. This is at the judgment seat of Christ. So he says in verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Does this mean that faith can save him judicially before God? Or does this mean it can save him at the judgment seat of Christ? Verse 12 tells us it's at the judgment seat of Christ. No, you cannot stand before Jesus and say, 
I am, I'm, I'm saved from this loss of rewards because I believed on you. You did well. You believed. That's good. But you did nothing with your faith. You will not have rewards. But they'll look at this passage and they'll say, if a person's really saved, then they'll have works because that's how we're justified. Skip down with me for a moment to verse 17. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. This word is in the Greek, it's nekra. Okay? And it doesn't mean spiritually dead, it means useless. If you've got someone who's died, you're not carrying around the body. As a matter of fact, within several hours, you're going to have some serious things going on. That body is of no profit. It's useless now. The real person's gone. This is the comparison that he's drawing. Your faith is, it's dead, it's useless. Why? Because you're not doing anything with it. This is about growing up. This is about being a mature Christian and realizing you stand to lose some things at the judgment seat of Christ. You need to change your mind and start demonstrating your faith. Yea, a man may say, now you need to understand this here. A man may say, we don't know if this is, this, this is more, most likely this is, Something that someone has said in defense of their position that they don't need works. Look what it is. He's using this as an illustration. Thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Now, this is where they, this is the linchpin, right? This is the grenade pin coming out and they go, see, someone can believe, but they're just believing like the demons do. What do the demons believe specifically? That Jesus Christ died and rose again? He didn't die for them. What do they believe? The unity of God. They do well. They believe the truth. Okay, great. Is this about salvation? No, this is a person who's again saying to themselves, my belief saves me from anything after I die. It does not save you from judgment at the judgment seat of Christ, from loss of reward. This has nothing to do with the faith that really worked. Now go down. This is their big one here. 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was his faith made perfect? Wait a sec. Wait a sec. That's the linchpin here. That's the important thing to look at. He was not initially justified by his offering of Isaac. He was declared righteous before the world because he demonstrated his faith in obedience and that made his faith initial? Was it born then? No, it makes it more complete. He's not more er savored now. He's just, the man is a faithful man. He will get a well done, Abraham. And you and I can receive a well done. Why? Because we demonstrated works to really seal our salvation? No, we demonstrated what we have believed. Look at the next one here, 23. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Ooh, now hang on. That word impute. What's that mean? I'm asking you because I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. What does impute mean? Put to. It's an accounting term. Put to your account. How is Abraham justified? He's justified by believing God's promise. It was put to his account. Okay? What is he? So, he, so James has not rewritten history here. He said he was saved judicially. 
justified before God by faith, and his faith was declared and made more perfect before the world when he offered up Isaac. Ye, uh, and look what he says. Was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. What's he saying here? He's looking at Abraham, and he's saying, the man was justified once by the faith that he placed in God's promise, and he was justified again before men by his works. So when the Jewish person would come to church and say, I love God, I'm for God, but the homeless person stays outside, or they're, they're told to come in and be quiet, sit over here, and the man with the nice clothes and the gold ring, oh, you come up and sit here. You're not demonstrating your faith to that homeless person. You're not demonstrating that faith to the world. Your faith is useless at that point. No, it was spurious, they'll say. It wasn't really faith. Look in John chapter 2. We've got to move quickly. John chapter 2. This is another passage that is commonly used to prove that a person can believe, but they didn't believe enough. Oh, I can't wait to show you this. John chapter 2, Jesus is beginning his ministry here. There's the marriage at Cana, so on and so forth. Look in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem, at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name. You need to mark that term. Believed in his name. It is the same Greek construction as another verse we'll look at in a moment. Many believed in, the, in his name. When they saw the miracles which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. This is the claim. They believed they had notia, they had a sensius, they had an understanding, they had a knowledge, and they agreed in his name, but Jesus didn't commit, them, uh, commit him to themselves because they didn't believe enough. They didn't show works. This construction here, John is a very simple writer. I like my friend John because I'm a simple reader. Amen? When he looks and says, believed in his name, it's the same Greek construction as chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. So hold your spot. Look in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. If salvation would have needed to be attained by these people by their works, John would have already set the standard. Look at what he says in John chapter 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to them uh, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Same Greek construction. You can essentially take believe on his name and put it right into John 2, 23. They did the same thing. So the Bible says the moment that you believe, you're born again. Look at 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. What's that? Not talking about their physical birth. He's talking about their new birth. Look in, uh, hold your spot in 2, in John chapter 2, and look in chapter 20. This is my favorite one. I love this one the most because, man, it is so clear. Why did John write this book? Why did he write it? I wonder if he said anything. I know I'm being sarcastic, and that's probably not beneficial for everybody. But look what it says here in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And many other signs, truly, 
did Jesus in the presence of his disciples? Stop for a moment. Did he do something in Cana? Yes. He had the miracle at the wedding. People saw that. They believed in his name. Same construction of John 1, and it matches here. In the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. The things that we do have in John, they're written for a purpose. That ye might, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, what's it say? Ye might have life through his name. Nothing here about obedience. Zero. Belief equals life. John later says in his epistle in 1 John, this is the record. You believe on the Son, you have life. And this is what we want you to know. That you have eternal life, 1 John 5.13. Look in chapter 6. You can let 2 go. Look in chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 60. That'll surprise you. How many? Yeah, 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, what's this? You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's using it as an illustration, but he knows. Look, guys, look up here for a moment. There's three types of disciples recorded in the New Testament. Okay, There are the curious ones, the ones who are interested and eager to learn, but they do not believe on Jesus as the Messiah. It's kind of like a 14-day trial period for them that they can cancel at any time. Then there are the ones who are convinced that he is the Messiah and they follow him, but they don't stay faithful to him. They go back to what they were doing. Their belief is still justified, but they miss out on rewards and the opportunity to suffer with Jesus, which apparently is an important thing. Then there's the third category, which are the committed. Those that have believed, they follow after him, and they obey him. Each one of those, the only thing that is different is what they believe about Jesus. Can you have a disciple who is not a believer? May I introduce you to a man named Judas? He was chosen as one of the twelve, and he never believed. You can be a follower of Jesus Christ and still not be saved. How? You do not believe on him. You have some type of work string attached. But he just had this very offensive thing. Remember, he had just fed the 5,000 and people are following along with him. And all of a sudden, the curious are like, I'm offended. We're leaving this guy. Look at 61. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at him, this is not the 12. These are the many that are following him. He said, doth this offend you? What? And if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before, it is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. Boy, if Calvinists want to really learn something, it's that. The flesh profiteth nothing. No, they don't justify you further. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. But there are some of you that, oh, 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 what? Believe not. That's the third category, non-saving faith. The atheist has non-saving faith. They have faith that they don't know much. And I'm not even trying to be funny, but that's what they say. They know enough that they have faith in all the things they don't know. The person who worships in Islam, has faith in Islam, but it does not save. Why? Because it's not in Jesus Christ. There is no spurious faith. You either believe or you don't. Continue here in 64. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of the Father. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit leads and guides people to truth. They still have a response to believe. 
Their responsibility is, do you believe? From that time, many of his disciples went back and what? Walked no more with him. This is what they say. 66 means that they were not really saved because they stopped walking with him. We don't have time, but you write down 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Excuse me, 6 through 10. 1 John chapter 1, 6 through 10. That is describing a believer who can stop their walk with God. Why? Because of sin. They're still saved, but they miss out. And then the last one here is in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 30 through 31. Page 1126. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then ye are my what? Disciples. He doesn't say then you're really saved. What's a disciple? Somebody who disciplines their behavior after a teacher. This is a common thing in Jewish culture. You and I don't understand this. Because it's not an American value. To be a disciple is this. You sacrifice your life for the teachings of a rabbi. I I went to Israel. I've been twice now. There are sects, groups of rabbis where there's young Jewish men that follow them. Follow their every word. Follow their every teaching. They model their character after their rabbi. They have left all to... The state of Israel pays for these people to do this. How many of you have been to Israel? Out of curiosity. You remember when you get on the plane, the long one? And how many people are dressed up as Hasidic Jews? Each one of those has a rabbi. Maybe they all have the same one, but they are disciples of that man's teaching. This is why the Pharisees and scribes and elders were threatened by Jesus. He was the new rabbi that spoke with power and authority. We can't have that. So they conspired to kill him. And John 8 is actually all about that. Look in 58. This is not a part of my message here, but this is just important to prove that point that we just talked about. Look at 57. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art yet 50 years old, and thou hast seen Abraham? Uh Uh-oh, here comes the hammer. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, which means truthfully, truthfully, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Amen. Why was that offensive? They're saying, they understood that what he was saying is, I'm God. And what did they do? Then they appreciated his teaching, submitted. No, 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 no. Look what it says. Then they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. But folks, on that night of Calvary, he did not go and hide himself. He had two false trials against him. He bore the weight of his own cross after his back was flayed open. He was beaten and he was mocked. And then he hung on that cross and he died for us. That's the grace of God. And anybody who simply believes on Jesus receives everlasting life. Now you want to be a disciple? Saddle up your horse. Get ready for the way that you used to live life to be challenged, and you need to make changes. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't think that you can just, oh, you know, it's not that bad. It is bad. The Bible says that we should abstain from the very appearance of evil. 
Well, that's not fair. Well, then don't follow Jesus and be ready to face the consequences of not having any rewards. Salvation costs you nothing. Discipleship will cost you everything. This is why Jesus speaks so strongly in Luke. Oh, I've got to go see my father. I've got to go bury the dead. You're going to follow me as your teacher, as your rabbi? Let the dead bury the dead. I don't have a place to stay, Jesus says. Foxes have their holes, birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What's he mean by that? The material possessions that people hold on to end up choking their ability to serve. Nothing about their salvation. How committed are you? But this has been weaponized. It's been totally weaponized. But those three passages that I looked at, those are the simple ones. Next week, we're going to look at Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25, and Matthew chapter 7, verses 14 through 23, not just 21 through 23. He has a whole dissertation that he does in, in verse 14 through 20. Those are the strong ones that they use. I just totally forgot to click through. So John 2, 23 through 25, John 6, 60 through 66, and John 8, 30 through 31. Let's turn the lights back on, please, and we'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I remember I was at a Grace Conference one time, and I was reading a book uh, as I was traveling to the Grace Conference, and it was by John MacArthur. I didn't know who he was at the time. I w- it was, this was probably 2011, I would say, maybe 2012. Mm-hmm. But uh, I wasn't in Bible college, and I didn't understand how to rightly divide the word. I knew what salvation was because that's what my church taught. But I started to get really concerned about these terms predestination, these terms foreknowledge, foreordained, all these different things. And it wasn't until someone just led me to my Bible and explained things simply in a way that made sense that I got peace. It could have very easily gone differently I could have gotten caught up in a lot of different false doctrine. You can be caught up in the same stuff. How do we protect ourselves? How do we guard ourselves? First of all, you ask God to help you through the Holy Spirit, and then you learn this. The Holy Spirit's leading, guiding, and directing into all truth. He will not speak of himself. He speaks of Jesus. He's not somebody that we've got to get together and do enough heebie-jeebie stuff, and all of a sudden he's like, I'm ready, here I am. He's, if you're saved by grace, you came in today, you got the Holy Spirit. You can grieve him. How do we avoid these things? How do we stay sensitive and fresh to our sin? We remember the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is the price tag. We know that righteousness does not come by the law. If it did, then Christ is dead in vain. We saw, that's not even my words. That's God saying that. But as your pastor, as somebody who wants to lead you, I, I think these studies are so important because they're everywhere. And if you are not careful, you'll get swallowed up into it. Here's the good news. Here's what really matters. That anybody of any condition can be accepted by God. How? Not by their good works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. If this hand represents you and me and my wallet represents sin, Put it on top of my hand because the Bible says for all have sinned and they come short of the glory of God. God, he loves us very much. The sin he hates, it separates us from him. Heaven's a perfect place. That's how good you got to be. Perfect. Husbands, if you think you are, don't ask your wives. We're not perfect. All joking aside, we're not. And it's actually quite foolish to think that anybody ever could be. 
Everyone talks about the sins you can commit. How about the ones that you, the good things you should do and you don't? Oh, I don't even know. Oh, then you can claim ignorance. Mm, you can't. You've got to be absolutely perfect. The payment for sin is death, eternal separation from God forever in a place called hell. Not good works. If this, my little notes here represent all the good things I did. I did this, I did this, I'm trying to do that. <laughs> Lord, give me grace. I do this, I do this. And you say, God, here it is. You know what you're doing? You're offering it next to the shed blood of his son and saying, this is just as good. We're not saved by any good works. We are a hopeless case. What do we need? We need a savior. We need someone to die in our place. And this hand represents Jesus Christ. That's what he did for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, anybody, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You mean it's that simple? Yes. Isn't that great? Isn't it good that now you don't have to sign up here out of fear of your life? No, you come here to, we come here to fellowship with one another. I haven't seen James in many years. You know what? He's still just as saved as the last time I saw him. I didn't get on the phone and say, hang on a sec. I haven't seen this guy in a while. How do I even know he's really saved? What kind of, he calls me, we talk, and I have great joy and fellowship for the rest of the day. Why? Because I'm talking to my brother in Christ. What's, what's, what do him and I have in common? It's not the same hair. What is it? We both put our trust in the same Jesus. That's, and that's great. So you come to church. You get to see other people saved. We're all saved. We sing amazing grace. It shouldn't be some melancholy thing. It is amazing grace. How sweet the sound was when we first heard it. It saved a wretch like me. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I can see. How? Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You fellowship with one another. We have great joy with one another. And then you bring people from outside and you say, look, you can experience this peace that passes understanding. Well, how? Take pastor's three-month course? No, believe on Jesus Christ. That's the uniqueness of what we have. How do we attain it? You believe on Jesus Christ. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 here. This is communion. This is for believers only. I'm looking out and I, I know all of you which I think is amazing, <laughs> that I, I can look at each one of you and know things about you that we've talked about, and I'm, I'm glad that we're all here. But I've got to make sure that you understand this is not for people that have not put their trust in Jesus Christ. We take this seriously. Why? Because this makes us more spiritual? No, it is supposed to be a remembrance of what he did for us. The Bible says here in verse 27 that we could take of the cup unworthily. We're supposed to, in verse 28, examine ourselves. We're going to take about two minutes. I know we're already over time, but that's okay. Take about two minutes. We're going to have the lights dimmed, and we're going to have Dana play some music. This is not to get you worked up emotionally, but I want you to think about the things that you have done in this past month that you know have marred your fellowship with God. The things that you know you should do. Talk to the Lord about it. Know that if you confess it, and this is not the Catholic idea of confession, this is just coming to an agreement with God about our sin, that he's faithful and just to remove that from your sanctification process now. And you can go on serving him. And once you get that all taken care of, you don't have to do each one name by name, but don't say, Lord, forgive me if I've ever sinned. Folks, take the if out. You know you have, myself included. And once you get right with God in that respect, 
Don the attitude of thankfulness. Hearken back to the price that was paid to redeem you. I'll be back with you in just a moment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll go ahead and return to the regular position here. And if you would, take that little wafer that, or this little uh, package that you have here. And if you would take off the first thin layer, that will reveal to you the little wafer here. This represents the Lord's body. There is nothing miraculous about this wafer here. It is sim- simply done as a reminder for what he did for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we remember his body. Heavenly Father, we think of your Son, Jesus Christ who went and did your will, Father, and died at Calvary, paying the price for our sin. But we know, Lord, that he was beaten brutally, that he was marred beyond recognition. He did not do this as an example for us, but in order he did it in order to pay for our sins. We rejoice in his sacrifice, but we also grieve at the price he had to pay. Lord, I pray that we are sensitive And remember this high cost of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for him, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. All right, let's look in our Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Return your attention back to this little communion cup and pull the larger tab. Be careful, pull it away from you or somebody else. This here, I, I like to 
talk about the blood of Jesus Christ. We did a study a while ago on Ephesians chapter 2, and we looked at the significance of his shed blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. All of the animal sacrifices, all of the temple practices, these things did not save people. It was a picture of the ultimate shed blood of Jesus Christ. And folks, he shed it for you and for me. And for those who have yet to believe, that blood is available for them too. And we need to remember that. When we are tempted to disobey, to be rude and unkind and selfish, hedonistic in our American culture, we need to remember this blood that was shed for us. He shed it so it would pay for our sins. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for this. Father, again, we come as body of believers here, Lord. We've spent time confessing things to you, and we know that you are faithful and you are just to forgive us. And we're cleansed from all of that unrighteousness. But Lord, we specifically remember Jesus and his blood. Every drop of it was precious and it was applied to our sin debt. And praise God, you have accepted it. We are saved by his shed blood. This is the grace that you have given to us. We pray for those, Lord, amongst the body today who are struggling with sin, selfish behavior, I pray, Lord, that this would be a sober reminder of how we were bought and that we are no longer our own. This price was your blood, and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he come. It has been done as the Lord has commanded. Are you glad to be here today? I'm glad that you're here. Let's all stand together. And if you would, if you'd come across the aisle, join hands with one another and we'll sing 135, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love, the fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. God bless you. Spend some time with each other. We'll see you here tonight for Awana at 5.30. God bless. (laughs) Robert. Testing, one, two, three. Yeah. Yeah. When both of those are on, it won't work. Another thing I...